in the description of the experience of receiving the Torah, which is what uh, tomorrow night relives, 3,300 odd years ago, the Torah makes a strange statement. Last week, you'll, you'll recall, we said that the whole Torah can be understood simply. In other words, whatever it says is meant literally. The deeper meanings are always hidden beneath the surface, and it may take a lifetime of delving to reach sequential layers of meaning. But a, super, a more superficial layer is never controverted by a deeper layer. Which means that no matter how deeply you understand, the more superficial meaning always is what it says. And the most superficial level of all the four levels or layers that we mentioned last week, that idea of paradise, the orchard, which has the four, letter, four letters denoting the four layers of, of, of depth in, in Torah understanding, that simplest level that we call pshat, meaning the simp simple, open or explicit level perhaps, that always means literally what it says. Last week we remarked on the differences between the initial description of the creation and the rest of the Torah on this level. But the rule is in general that the simple meaning always carries literally what the words say. If that's true, then there's a statement that is made, that the Torah itself makes in the description of the receiving of the Torah, that experience of standing at Sinai, which is very difficult to understand. And the Torah says that they heard that the sound of the shofar, the, the, there, was a, there was a supernal sound of a, of a shofar, Shofar, which sounded unlike any human sound, any sound normally intelligible to humans, unlike the normal sound of an instrument that's blown, it got stronger instead of weaker. But the whole cosmic experience of receiving the Torah when we all stood at Sinai, the Zohar says each of our souls, each, each individual Jewish neshama was there, even converts who converted to Judaism later. We stood at Sinai and the sound that was heard which accompanied that singular event in the history of the world was the sound of the shofar. Why specifically that sound, of all the sounds that might have been, what the connection is to the shofar that we blow on Rosh Hashanah? There's a long, a long discussion. But the difficulty that, that I'd like to focus on this evening <coughs> is a way of access to this very deep and mystical area is that the Torah says that they saw the sounds. That's what it says. Roi nesakoilis. Roin etakolot. They saw the sounds. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? And particularly if you understand that all the statements in the Torah are made literally, it means that they have to be understood technically. It means the words are exactly what they mean. There's no metaphorical expression, no poetic expression. They're not literally true. So what is the literal meaning, and how do you begin to understand the literal meaning of the concept of people who saw sound? And we know that all the modalities of human experience, seeing, hearing, 
smell, taste, whatever the body experiences or does, input or output, is all nothing other than a pattern that's reflected in the body from the highest of the spiritual worlds. And it has to be exactly in the body what it is in the higher world. And when the Torah talks about those things that manifest here, like seeing or hearing, they have to be exactly what they are. They have to be exactly what they're... So what is the meaning, again, what is the meaning of the fact that they saw the sounds? How can that possibly be understood? What is the literal... What is the first level, let alone the deeper levels? What is the first level of understanding of that statement? Why did it have to be that way? What is meant? (coughs) Now, in order to understand this, (coughs) we'll have to explore some of the deeper layers that lie behind the simple words in the Torah and obviously that lie behind the levels of functioning in the human body. So in the sources that talk about these things, it states that each faculty, each part of the body carries a spiritual power. Seeing is not just something you happen to do with your eyes. It's the projection and manifestation in the body of something that comes from the root of creation. Hearing is the same thing. In fact, these sources go through the body from the very top. In fact, the highest thing is called the metzach, the highest... The highest point is really that point which is the interface between the body and that which is outside of it, which is this place here, this area here where, where a man wears his twillin, where the bones of a child are, are not fused, where you can, feel the, you can feel the brain of a newborn child <coughs> pulsating. The wearing of twillin, the one says that a person who misses out on certain mitzvahs, certain consequences... Missing out on a positive mitzvah has certain consequences. But the Gemara says that missing out on the mitzvah of tefillin for a man is particularly serious. The Gemara says there are particularly severe negative consequences for a person who does not wear tefillin at least once. or Certainly should be done every day. But the skull that does not wear tefillin, that's the way it's put in the sources. What's unique about this mitzvah is that that point in the body is the interface between what is you and what, is, what transcends you. The third eye, if you like, the Torah says it's between the eyes, and we do not wear tefillin between the eyes. We wear tefillin, that's what between the eyes means. (laughs) This is not tonight's subject, but that's the first level in the body. In the Kabbalistic writings, it's called rotson, it means desire. It's the initial point of desire or volition. It's a subject in its own right. The first thing that manifests within the body, not the transition from beyond the body to within, but that which is already within the body is called a medzach, that's the forehead. There's a lot that's written about it also. It's so high that it has no, it has no, it has no sensory expression in the world. It doesn't do, it's so high that it's just a blank surface. But the forehead reflects the essence of the manifest human being. The rotsa in here reflects that which is your point of transcendence where you link into that which is beyond you, and the metzach, the forehead, is the, is the first glow of consciousness or of, of experience within the body. You'll recall that the Kohen Godel, the high priest, used to wear a tzitz, which was worn on this part of the body, had Hashem's name on, 
Torah says that when the women of Midian were tested to see in an issue of modesty, they were passed before the tits. What that deep internality of a woman has to do with this part of the body. Many, many things to be discussed here. The deep sources say that the forehead, really what it does is it determines direction. It's not a faculty, but it's la'an panecha. It means where are you facing? It, that's essentially the sense of face. It's before there's a journey that's begun. You have to face the direction of the journey. There are many things to talk about here. But what comes after that is the eyes and the ears. Eyes and ears, <laughs> those are the two modes or the two faculties in which sense, a sense of harmony is possible. Beauty, for example. The concept of beauty, we always have a deep idea that beauty always lives in, in that zone of human perception where opposites can meet in such a way that they blend into that which is more than either of them alone. That's why beauty exists only in the sense of sight and sound. Beauty is only when you see things that are, that are contradictory or sweepingly different and they harmonize into one beautiful vista or scene, a sense of beauty. It's an exhilarating and elevating experience. And sound can do that as well. Sound is that mode where sounds are put together correctly, in music correctly constructed, for example. So, beauty in sound is not where you have more of the same, or not more intensity of the same. Beauty in sound is where different sounds are combined in such a way, and opposite sounds perhaps, are combined in such a way that one thing results which is far more than the components of the individual sounds. Below this level is no longer possible that kind of harmony. In the senses of smell, taste, and below, there one already reaches the level where pleasure is possible, but not beauty. No sense of beauty in smell or taste. A sense of pleasure. You're moving already closer to the mode of physicality, connection with the lower senses, and those again are discussions in their own right. But if we focus for a moment on this layer of sight and sound, I think we once discussed the idea that both in seeing and hearing the world is built on a pattern of seven. In that which we apprehend of the world through our vision and that which we apprehend of the world through our hearing. Both of those interactions with the world are through a series of seven. That's what Sfirah Sa'im is all about. Counting of the Omer, which we're going through now, that we've arrived tonight. <coughs> Today was the 48th day. Final day. That series of seven, seven times seven, is really living in the world, the, way, the, 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 the modalities or the, the modes in which we can grasp them are really only, only begin with hearing and seeing. It's known, to every, it's known to every child that the seven colors in the spectrum that we see, it's not an arbitrary human choice. The, the physical facts are so. Scientific facts of physics are like that. There are seven distinct colors that make up the spectrum. Of course it's an infinite spectrum, but there are seven nodes in that spectrum that are clearly visible. And in hearing, again, every child should know that the music that we appreciate, at least the Western ear, is a music that's built on the scale that involves seven notes. And again, they're not arbitrarily chosen. They're scientifically precise. The tuning of those seven notes that make up the, 
<coughs> not just an arbitrary thing that sounds good to us. There's a very, very specific mathematical relationship between those notes. In fact, it shouldn't be a surprise to you that the order of progression of those notes in sound, in the, in the frequencies of sound, is paralleling the wavelengths of light that make up those seven colors that make up the spectrum. They're identical systems. And just like vision is made up of three primary colors, those seven colors in the spectrum have three primaries. And from those three, all the rest are constructed. Similarly, in the musical scale, you have three notes that form the key of any seven, the tonic, the dominant, and the subdominant. Those are three primary notes on which the scale or the key is built. The very, very hardened skeptic who regards these things as mere accident of a world that bumped into itself accidentally and resulted in that sort of order. Not only that, but if you take all the seven colors in the spectrum and you put them together, you get white light, which mystically is the color of the highest <coughs> level. It's a color in which no single color is discernible. There's a very hard to find a better metaphor in the, phys- in the world of physics, in the world of physical experience, for how disparate things can bond together in such a way that they become one thing which is the brightest of all, and so intensely that no single color can be discerned. It's a remarkable analogy. If you bring it down slightly, not in the Sophie Yetzirah, one of the original Kabbalistic sources in the Torah, the eyes are described as being on a plane just above the ears. If you bring it down slightly out of vision, <coughs> for example, instead of shining light, if you shine the three primary colors of light, it's a very beautiful thing to do. If you take a white screen and you shine three circles of the three primary colors on the screen and you slowly focus them till they, until they mesh, the colors all disappear and you see only white. But instead of shining rays of light, if you take pigment, which really is the same thing, after all, a pigmented color is only reflecting that same wavelength of, of light that your filter allows. Nevertheless, if you take pigment of those same colors and mix them, you do not get white. You get the color of earth. That which in the Kabbalistic writings is called Malchus. It's the, instead of being the point of origin, it's the point of receiving at the end of the process. But it's only in the very highest that you, of course in sound, which is already below that level, if you mix all the sounds, you don't get a pure white sound. You get a, you get a sound that is... It's not music. So these two modes of seeing and hearing, these are primary modes of our grasp of the world, and they therefore will contain all of the wisdom, all of the secrets that we need in order to understand really all of our interaction with the world. Of course, in terms of Shavuot, Shavuot, which is coming up tomorrow night, so the concept is how all the parts are bonding into oneness. That is the essence of what this is all about. In fact, the same sources that we mentioned earlier, they say that of the 49 days of Surah Omer, you know that all 48, first 48 days, which is until today, is uh, each one representing one of the 48 different characteristics by which one acquires Torah. If you look up in the Mishnah, you'll see that there are 48 methods of acquiring Torah. 48 qualities of character of effort and qualities of character that you need in order to absorb Torah. Why need there be so many? Because Torah needs to be grasped. It it has to be assimilated and grasped by the whole being. Not only by the whole being. It puts the whole being together. And therefore, in order to receive Torah, you need all 48 of the characteristics. What happens to the 49th day? Why are there 48 characteristics of Torah when we count 49 days? 
Again, anyone who's ever read any sources will know the 49th is always the totality of all 48. Again, it's called the Malchus, it's called the, it's called the receiver, the receptacle, the ultimate female dimension, the one that puts it all together, constructs it, makes it whole. That's the 49th. It has no quality of its own. It is the quality of putting all the others together and does not confuse the picture or contaminate the picture with its own importance. It, it is the quality of such utter humility that, it, that nothing shines of it at all. It's only a vessel for the others. Some sources say that the 49th day, the work is a revision of all 48. What you work on this day is not this particular characteristic or that one or strengthening this aspect of your character or your sensitivity, but you revise all of them and bring them all into a totality so that by tomorrow night when the sun goes down and Shavuos begins, so then it is the ability to transcend the totality and the oneness and the completion into that which is completely beyond. That's what, that's what the 50th day is, and that, of course, is why we do not count the 50th, we only count 49. Even though the Torah specifically commands us to count 50, it says, Tisbru, Hamishim, Yom, count 50 days. We only count 49. The idea being that the 50th is beyond counting. The way we count the 50th is by not counting it. If we got up on the 50th day and we set a number, we would be reducing it to just one more number in the count. The whole concept of, of 50 is that which is beyond any number. And therefore we, we count it by allowing it to happen without limiting it to a specific number on a line of numbers. Let's go a little deeper into the concept. Let's go a little deeper into the concept of seeing and hearing. See if we can understand another level. It's very hard to try to <coughs> talk about these things, maybe impossible. The words by definition are inaccurate. In order to understand the subject deeply, you need to understand deeply that you can see with your ears, <coughs> you can hear with your eyes. <coughs> it's very, very, very clumsy to speak about in words, but let's, let's, let's struggle together and see if we can together work out this central idea. How do we approach a subject like this that lives in the deepest realms of the, of, the hidden, of the hidden wisdom? So the principle that we use is always that we look at the body. Since the body is a reflection of that source which cannot be seen directly, the only access we have to it is to study the body. You could study the world too. But the world is a more distant reflection. The human body is a much more primary reflection. It says, Mipsari From my flesh I see Hashem. <coughs> From the world I see Hashem as well. But it's slightly more indirect. It says, Lift your eyes to the heavens. And see who created these. It means that when you see the heavens, you see who created them. It doesn't mean that you directly necessarily see Him, but you see who created them. It's perhaps one step away. Mi baro who created these? The, 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 the sources that comment on the Zohar say, if you, if you know any Hebrew, you'll know that me, bara ele, who, create, who created these, the verb is bara, created. But who created these, me and ele is Shem Elohim. The letters me and ele, when you put them together, that, that's Hashem's name. So when it says me, bara ele, who created these, it's the name of creation, right? Shem Elohim, which created these things that you see. But when you look at the body, you see it directly. 
Mipsori echse. That means, I don't see who made the body. I see, I don't learn that the body was made by him. I see him directly. As directly as it's possible to see. Mipsori echse. From my flesh I see. In fact, the commentaries say that the flesh is always the lowest aspect. The flesh is always the lowest aspect of your humanity. Whenever we refer to people by the word Basa, basa means meat, that's what it means. It literally means flesh, it means meat. When we refer to human beings with that word, we're always talking about the lowest manifestation. That's why it says, uh, that's why it says, finally, when Hashem appears on earth in the messianic revelation, it says, All flesh shall see that the mouth of Hashem has spoken. All flesh shall see. It doesn't say all human beings and all minds and all eyes. It says the flesh shall see. All flesh shall see. That means all humanity, even at the very lowest and least sensitive level, will see that Hashem has spoken. What do you hear in those words? Let, let me say the verse for you again. I would like to see one or two faces light up. It would really it would make my evening. Bang my week. It says, Listen carefully to the words. And all flesh shall see that the mouth of Hashem has spoken. What do you notice about those words? Remarkable thing. Eyes don't see that a mouth has spoken. Ears hear that a mouth has spoken. This is another case of seeing sound. That when the final revelation occurs, and Hashem appears on earth, and all human beings become immediately aware of that, that which we cannot see now directly. So then the description that the Torah, the beautiful description that the that the Torah gives of that event is that all human eyes shall see that the mouth has spoken. Again, it's a clear case of seeing speech, which is sound. It's not an accident that the Torah says by the giving of the Torah that they saw the sounds. You see that any time the Torah talks about the final stage of revelation, when the, highest, when the higher world appears within the lower world and the two meet, so then we talk about seeing sound. It's consistent. So what does it mean? So we look at the body. In order to understand these things, we look at the body. Because every function of the body is a reflection of its source. And since we have no other access to that source, we have to look at the body. But it's good enough. Even though what you're seeing is a reflection, but it's an exact reflection, exact replica. The analogy that we've used, shared before, is like when a film is projected on a screen, even though when you look at the screen, you're not seeing the film, and you're certainly not seeing the point of origin that was photographed to make that film, but you're seeing an exact replica. One day when you meet the people who were photographed and you see those places, you'll recognize them because you saw their projection on a screen. Even though what you're seeing on a screen is two-dimensional and it's completely illusory, but it's an exact projection. You have to know how to translate the two dimensions into three. There's skill that needs, needs skill, needs depth, needs study, needs sensitivity, but it's all there. Similarly, when you look at the body, perhaps even more deeply, when you look at the body, you can see the level that projected it. In the very highest level of the spiritual chain reaction that brings the world into existence is the figure of a human of a human form of course it's not a human form it's, it's what it is, we are a figure of that form the human form is a figure of that form we call that we, we give it a name that indicates a human form but of course it's not a human form, it's what it is we are the form of that when the Torah talks about Adam being formed it's talking about that that's, that's what it really means. That's what it means at its deepest level. But the principle is that we study the body and the manifestations of the body and the faculties, the parts of the body, how they interact, what they do. And if you understand them correctly, 
you will be able automatically to see, automatically to see what it is that projects it. Just, that way, just as when you watch a film projected on a screen, you don't need to do the work of translation. You automatically, in your mind's eye, picture the source. You see it in three dimensions. You allow yourself, you penetrate the two-dimensional flat illusion, and you, and you interact with the, with the source. You have that faculty. Similarly, in looking at the body correctly with trained eyes, we should be able to see the source. You know that even this message, even the message that the body is a vehicle for seeing the higher world, even that message, let alone the fact that when you do it, you can see it. But in order to be taught that that's the place where you can do it, the gift is given to us, that the body does that naturally. The Ramchal says that every object is transcended by what he calls a koyach nivdal. Koyach nivdal. It's very hard to translate in English. The, the best English translation would be a transcendental force. Koach nivdal means that there's an abstraction which is, the, which is abstracted above any object or phenomenon or experience. It is the root of that experience or object. It is more real than the object, but it's much less tangible, of course, much less visible, but it's much closer to the source. That's a fundamental principle that you need in order to build this wisdom. How can you use principles like that if you cannot make contact with them immediately? What's the point of, of wanting me or commanding me to study the spiritual world that needs a relationship to these deeper things if you don't give me a tangible... So the principle in Torah is that Hashem expects you to relate to those things and in every area He gives you one free gift. One free gift in which you can immediately and personally grasp that thing with no effort. And the lesson you learn from doing that you apply to all the other categories where you cannot do it naturally and that's where you do your work. <coughs> what is the concept of the world after this? The world to come in which the results of the work are felt and experienced. Complete abstraction, you have Shabbos. Shabbos. You do Shabbos correctly, you work hard all week. And then you enter a zone where you cannot produce. All you can have is the results of what you produce during the week. Understand that experience correctly, internalize it correctly. You've tasted the experience of the next world. In fact, that's why the Talmud, that's why the Gemara says that Shabbos is one sixtieth of the world to come. Just like sleep is a sixtieth of death, and a dream is a sixtieth of prophecy. Why a sixtieth? Because any Jew knows that in the laws of kashrus, of kosher food, if one type of food gets mixed in with another, that's forbidden to be mixed. For example, some milk falls into meat. If there's less than one in sixty, you can eat it. And the reason is because it has no taste. More than one in sixty is the borderline of the possibility of taste. So it's a beautiful hint. What the Gemara is saying is that any experience that is one sixtieth something else means on the borderline of being able to taste that thing. If you live Shabbos correctly, you can taste the next world. If you live it wrongly, you will not taste it. On the contrary, those same deep sources say that if you live Shabbos incorrectly, then it becomes a very depressing day. It becomes spiritually battering and deeply depressing. Shabbos done correctly, that means a, a day where the day should be the result of the work that's been invested, that should lift you above the process. It lived correctly, it lifts you above. But you have to put the work in to do it. But lived incorrectly, it brings you down. In fact, this is why the early Christians changed Shabbos. They changed it from, from Saturday to another day. The Muslims changed it the other way. But the day was very negative. The early Christians who were Jews, so that day was very, very problematic and they had to move it to it. So Shabbos is the example, if lived correctly, that you can taste the higher world. Sleep understood correctly, 60th of death. You have to know what it is and how to relate to it. That's why you have to wash your hands in the morning, because the neshama leaves through the fingertips. In fact, the same sources say that the reason you have nails 
is because the light is so intense there where the neshama where leaves and re-enters that you need protection. Those same works say that Adam, Adam Rishon was covered in skin like your nails. He didn't have skin like us. He had skin like your nails, which emanated light only. He was clothed in skin that was spelt with an aleph, not an ayin. His skin was aleph vavresh, which means or. It does not mean skin, it means light. Imam says that he was not clothed in skin, he was clothed in light. And then after he sinned, and his internal dimension became in v- at variance with his external dimension, so then the interface between them became, instead of or with an aleph, it became or with an ayin, which in Hebrew means the skin. That means, you know that in the... You know that in the... In any word in Hebrew that has an aleph, if you transpose the aleph into an ayin, then you get the fallen version of that thing. Aleph is completely silent in Hebrew. It has completely spiritual letter. It means one and it's completely silent. Aleph means, aleph in Hebrew means to raise up spiritually, to teach and elevate. Aleph is the highest number. Aluf always means the highest. English word elephant and elevate. Aleph comes from Hebrew aleph. Aleph. English directly derived from Hebrew. Which is a complete aside. <laughs> but, for another time. But the Aleph is always the completely silent letters not yet come into the world. That's a tragedy that people have taken away Hebrew from the Jewish people. Absolute weeping tragedy. You can't learn Torah without Hebrew. It's like they're trying to learn Italian and English. <laughs> Only it matters. But when you take the Aleph, which is silent, and you transpose it for an Ayin, which in Hebrew has a vocalization, Ayin is not a silent letter. Anybody knows how to speak Hebrew correctly, the Ayin is regarded as a guttural letter, it has a sound, it's, def- it's clearly audible. And Ayin is the letter of Aleph becoming tangible. And that's why light in Hebrew is with an Aleph, but when you translate it into Ayin Vavresh, it becomes or skin. And if you know a little Hebrew, you know that the word Ayin Vavresh in Hebrew doesn't only spell skin, it spells Iver, which means blind. Before it was light by which you see. And now the skin has become ayin vavresh, which means a blind. It hides the internality. Where do you think the English word hide comes from? To have a thick hide. Well, why do they call it that? Because it hides the internal thing. That's exactly what it is. It's iver. It's, it's or with an ayin. That's what it is. It's so clear. All you need is a little Hebrew. Come religious automatically. <laughs> Immediate. No effort required. <laughs> but that root force that transcends anything that manifests. So there's an example of that, just like all these. What's the example? Is that when you look at a human being, <coughs> you're automatically aware of the person inside. Although all you can ever see is a body, and you have no faculty that ever can make contact with anything other than the body, and no matter how well you know someone, how many years you live together with someone, you never see anything other than the body. Because you have no organ or faculty that ever can be make contact with the person inside. And yet, the skill that we have, women have this skill, particularly deeply, it's a, many places say, but even men, even even men at their brutally fallen level. <laughs> if they just try minimally, 
know that when they look at a human being, what they witness is the body, but what they experience is the person inside. And you get to know the person inside, but only from seeing the body. How do you do that? Because every movement and every nuance and every expression of the body and every change of expression and every response, those very, very subtle clues, they add up to tell you who the person is inside. And in fact, we do it so naturally that we we register the person directly. In a very intense moment in a, in a relationship when something intense happens and you see a slight nuance of a hint of a shade of a change of expression on someone's face. That's enough to know exactly that the relationship never be the same again after that. And what happened was you experienced that inner being of that person and you have a certainty of what happened there. Even though all that you saw was a twitch of some very flimsy muscles and skin. And in fact it happens so automatically that the last thing you think about is that physical change. When you hear words of depth, for example, and you relate to the concepts, and you relate to what's in the mind of the one who speaks, the last thing you're thinking of is the physical medium of lips moving and tongue moving and sound. Of course, when you think about it, that's all you can, that's all you can think of. But until then, of course, you weren't. <laughs> in other words, there's a gift that you don't need to work on. It's so if free and automatic. You look at a person, you watch the movement and manifestation of the body, and you know who they are. But no effort. So you must not stop there. You must take that and look at a tree that way. It's given as a gift all these things. Every spiritual, every free ride, every free avenue of insight in the world is given so that you can see what's inside. Once you see there, you mustn't, you don't stop there. You don't only take the free gifts. You take the free gifts and you forge new so once you know how to look at the body, and you know that there's a person inside, and you can see it, then you look at a tree that way, look at the whole world that way. Nebuchadnezzar Shekhan says the whole world is a body. And there's a shama investing the whole world. <coughs> you have to strip away that ore, which is Iver, and see the light. You have to do that. It's not an accident, I'm, I'm sure you're already thinking ahead of me. The word, the word or in Hebrew, if you rearrange the letters... Instead of, you put a resh aleph, that's the root of seeing in Hebrew, to see. And if you rearrange the letters of or with an ayin, that forms the word evil in Hebrew, which is the blocking of the spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom. There's nothing accidental about this. That's how you learned at school, didn't you? (laughs) Now, with that knowledge... Let's look at, the, at sight and sound and see what do they tell us. Without any spiritual attempts to understand, let's just look at the body. So let's do that exercise. Yes, you have the energy to do it with me? Yes. <coughs> let's do this exercise. All we're going to do for a few minutes is study objectively what it is to see and what it is to hear. But objectively. And then we'll see what we can elevate ourselves. Can we take that knowledge and go into the spiritual source? Even though we may not find the words for that. What's the difference between seeing and hearing? What is the difference? Again, let's just observe accurately. That's all. From that we'll learn everything we need to know. You can learn the whole Torah from observing the world. You don't need to read the words. Observe what the Torah builds, the world. You can learn the whole Torah. The difference between seeing and hearing is this. That what you see, you see all at once. When you see something... Again, we have, to, we have to work for this. When you see something, you see all of it at once. You see all the components at once. There's no process involved in seeing. When you look at a scene, all the components impinge themselves on your awareness at once. 
There's no process, there's no construction. There's an instantaneous clarity. Again, don't make the mistake. You can, you can hear with your eyes too. You can hear with your eyes. When you read a book, you're not seeing, you're hearing. <coughs> but in pure vision, when you see something that can be seen, you see it all at once. There's no process, there's no construction, there's no two ways to put it together. There's only one way, and you see it, and it's clear. That's why the word in Hebrew for seeing, amazing, amazing to understand, so obvious. The word for seeing in Hebrew is re'iyah, to see. That which is seen in Hebrew, you say re'iyah. The Hebrew word for a proof is re'ayah, it's the same word. In English you say seeing is believing, that's a very, very crude and fallen version of the same thing. But the, the concept is that what you see is proven. Seeing is believing. You see it, it's all there. Can't argue with it if it's witnessed. When a witness brings testimony, the witness comes in and says what he saw. He saw it, the court must accept. Re'iyah is a re'iyah. Incidentally, if you rearrange the letters of re'iyah and re'iyah, you get ariyah, which means a lion. A lion, which is the numerical equivalent in Hebrew of gvura, which is what the lion symbolizes, which is total power. Total forcing itself upon you. There's no room to move. There's no, there's no place for... <coughs> well, how do you hear? When you hear, it's exactly the opposite mode. You can't hear everything altogether. When you hear, hearing happens a piece at a time. Vision happens instantaneously and it's a mode that takes place in the light. Hearing is a mode that takes place piecemeal over a process and happens in the darkness. How do you hear something? When someone says something to you that must be heard, first you hear one syllable. And then by the time they pronounce the next syllable, the next piece of that word, the first one has already faded away. It's only memory. By the time they say the third, the second has faded into memory. And you still don't know what they say. Then you hear the fourth and the fifth, and by the time you hear the sixth and the seventh and the tenth and the eleventh, by the time you hear the twelfth or the forty-ninth, the forty-eighth has faded into memory. And all you ever hear is the one piece that's being added all the time while the others fade further and further into memory and you still don't know what's being said. And only by the time the last piece has been added, sometimes only the last piece does it. But by the time the last one has been slotted into place, then you can put together the whole thing that's been said. Sometimes it might be the entire opposite of that which may have appeared to be under construction. Hearing happens inside you. The mystics say that vision happens outside of you. What you see happens in the scene. It doesn't happen inside you. It's completely objective. When you see a scene, it's there in front of you. It happens outside of you in the thing that is seen. But when you hear something, it happens entirely inside of you. It's completely subject. It's entirely your construction. Is this clear? Isn't this an extreme? Aren't these two obviously and clearly extremely opposite modes? See, brought up in Western thinking, you think that you see and you hear because... Some time ago, a long time ago, when you were a bat, you heard. And then sometime after that, when you became a uh, pigeon. <laughs> so you still have those things that happen to be there. That way of looking at the body will not teach you anything. And so happens to be true as well. Obviously, Abnossin says that each part of the body comes from a different part of the creation. In fact, that lists each part of the body and what it, wh- where it came from, which part of the created external world constructed man who was the last object to be created. 
But it's anything but accidental. So again, let's, let's try and put it together. Seeing which is the higher mode. It's done with the eyes. You know what the word ayin is in Hebrew? Again, all you need is the words. You only need the words. The word ayin in Hebrew, meaning an eye, has the same meaning in Hebrew as an underground spring that breaks to the surface. Ma'ayan. A ma'ayan, al-ein ha'mayim, you say in Hebrew, by the spring of water. Ein, ayin in Hebrew, means a spring. A spring, a ma'ayan in Hebrew, by definition, is a place where the underground water breaks forth and it becomes visible. It comes into gilu, it comes into revelation. That's what the eye is. The eye is the organ that can bring out meaning where it may not have been apparent before. When you see it, you bring out its revelation. That's exactly what you do. What happens when you take ayin with an ayin and you put an aleph instead of the ayin? Yeah. You get ayin, that which is not, that which is not yet. Ayin. The Hebrew word ayin with an aleph. Aleph yud nun. That means that which is not yet manifest. You know what the mystical definition is of ayin in Hebrew with an aleph? Ayin. It means that which is not, but could be. Ephes in Hebrew means that which is not and could not be. Ayin ve Ephes. Ephes means it is not and could not be. Ayin, Ayin in Hebrew means that which is not, but could be. And of course, it's no wonder that the same letters that form Ayin, which means is not, if you rearrange them, it spells Ani, which is the essence of that which could be if you bring it out. <laughs> it's also the root of the word Anna, which means, where are you going? to where? But if you take the ayin with an aleph, which means is not, and you translate, you put that ayin instead. But the first work is to learn Hebrew. We cannot, we can't progress it. If you want to continue, continue with these meetings, <laughs> you want to learn things that are essential and deep and real. So you have to have the language. Without the language, you won't even be a spectator. Let alone a participant. If you're Israeli, you have to work much harder. <laughs> much harder. Because <laughs> you think you speak Hebrew. Clear as lightning. Yeah. Anyway, so the eye is the organ that is able to bring that spring to the surface and bring it to Gilui to revelation. So when you see something, that the experience is one of Gilui, revelation, the thing has not yet been revealed. You put your eye on it, it's formed that way. And that's why it, it forces itself upon you, there's no room to move, it's entirely outside of the viewer, it happens instantaneously, and it happens in the light. <coughs> you need light to see. <coughs> Hearing, <coughs> what we call Shmi'a in Hebrew, is a construction. Let's go a little deeper. Hearing is a construction. It happens in the darkness. It is a process and not, a, and not instantaneous. It's already we've come down into the world of darkness. Prophecy, for example, what is prophecy called in Hebrew? Vision and seeing. You know, even in English, the translation of a chose, you know, a, a person who sees. In English we call a seer, meaning a prophet. 
A prophet is one who, actually prophecy in Hebrew means that he, that he wells up the knowledge. T- uh, Navi means like Alpnei Tevel Tenuvah. It means that there's a Nibsvah time. It means that there's a welling up like the, like the growth of that which grows from beneath the ground. He's able to express that and bring it out. But in order to do that, he must see. And that's why prophecy is described as a vision. The Navi sees. He sees it in his inner eye. He doesn't hear it. He sees it. Hearing is dark and subjective, and it's what you make of it. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is what you see. Because it's absolutely clear. It comes from the higher world. But when you move down below the level of vision, you move down into the level of the ears, what we call Shmi'ah, hearing, so then, you're talking about a process that's dark. The construction happens within the self. Each component is put together over a long period of time. You know what Svirah Sa'omer is? The Svirah, counting, is that process. The counting only makes sense when you've gotten to the end. When you've built the totality of all the components and they're all finally put there. Not the word Sipur in Hebrew means Svar, which means to count. Mispar, which means a number, is exactly the same root in Hebrew as Sefer, a book. Or the word Sipur. You know what Sipur means in Hebrew? A story. Do you know what a story is? A story is one word, and then another word, and then another word, and another sentence, and another paragraph, and another page. And it's only sometimes in the final line of the story that the whole thing makes sense. Sipur means, yes, mispar means, svira sa'ome means, that you're counting one number after another, after another, and by the time you say the second, the first is long gone, and by the time you say the third, the second is long gone. And the totality of the Sipur, when you tell the final line of that story, the whole story then. You have to go back to the beginning and reassess the first word now. Because when you've heard the last word, the only then does the first word. You know that the Talmud begins on page 2. You know that? Open any page of Talmud. The Gemara. The Gemara begins on, the Torah begins on a base. But the Talmud begins on page 2. There's no page, no Aleph. Look up any Talmud. You think it's a misprint? There's no Aleph. Always base. <coughs> it's to show you this is not the point of beginning. You have to lock into the cycle somewhere, but it's only when you've been through it once do you really begin to understand the first time. Because until you've seen it all, the first point is meaningless. The first point only means what it means in any spiritual system when it's enlightened, when it's lit by the entire rest of the circle, the cycle. It would be terribly misleading to call it page one. You'd think, oh, this is where you begin. And you start building sequentially. But Torah isn't like that. There's no piece that stands on its own which is added to by the next. That's where you do the work. The truth, when you see it, forces itself upon you, it's a proof. The truth, when you hear something, is entirely up to you. You want to hear it, you hear it. You don't, you don't have to. When you read a book, your eyes are looking at the words, but you're hearing, you're not seeing. You're putting one word after another word after another word, your eyes are doing it, but it's called hearing. It's a story and stories are heard. You can, do, you can do it with other parts of the body too. But the part of the body that teaches it is the eye. The part of the body that teaches hearing. Are we getting somewhere? We can't apply it to the spiritual world until we understand it in its own terms. Do we do, we do that? Do we manage that? Not sure, huh? You didn't hear, that's the problem. See? It's going to be a long night. You know that you know that the word Shema in Hebrew. Let's try and take it a layer deeper. See if we can make it clearer. The word Shema, which means to hear, Shema, right? The word Shema in Hebrew 
Do you hear what, what's called the Ozen in Hebrew? Laha'azin huh? means to listen, Ozen, yeah. Shema means to hear. You know what Shema means literally? People think Shema means to hear. It's not the literal meaning of the word Shema. The application of the meaning is to hear with the ear. That's we say Shmiya and Shema. The literal meaning of Shema in Hebrew means to construct oneness out of pieces. The literal meaning of Shema means to build disparate and disjointed pieces into a oneness. For example, when Tanakh uses the word in Tanakh, it says, Vayeshama Shaul etaam. You know what that means? He gathered the people together. The Torah says, Vayeshama Shaul etaam. Shaul, the king Saul, gathered the people together. The simple, if you read that word, you think it's a misprint. It, seems, it's, it sounds like he heard the people together. Heard. H-E-A-R-D. It means, Vayeshama means he put them together. Shema in Hebrew means to take bits of, of things that are and to construct them into what he's heard. You know what Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad means? If, it, if there's one thing a Jew should know, it's this. There's one thing you should know before receiving the Torah tomorrow night. It's what Shema is. What is Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad? What does that mean? The simple translation, I don't know how poor your Jewish education is. You must know this. The word Shema Yisrael means, in simple translation, Hear, O Israel. Hashem Elokeinu, that means Hashem our God, Hashem Echad is one. So the, 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 the pathetically battered and, and, and completely insensitive translation that the Jews never thought translates that as hear, O Israel, meaning listen, in the sense of pay attention. The Torah is telling you, in other words, this is very important. So in case you're not listening, listen. That's nonsense. Nonsense. The Torah doesn't call your attention. The Torah assumes that you're listening before you begin. They're not speaking to those who are not listening. <laughs> Shema doesn't mean You see, the problem is you've got an English ear In English you have Hear, O Israel You know, hear, O It's, it's rhetorical, it's, it's dramatic It doesn't have to mean anything It just sounds good <laughs> There's nothing like that in Torah In Torah every word is of essence This most important statement That the, that the Torah has is not preceded by an injunction, you know, if you want a proof of it, the word Shema ends with an Ayn. And the word Echad at the end of the sentence ends with a Dalit. And the two are printed big in the Sefer Torah. And when you put those two together, it spells aid, give testimony. It's not that the Shema is just an extraneous part urging you to listen and then the sentence begins. <coughs> the Shema is the essence of the sentence. It's the Ayn of aid. Means give testimony. Incidentally, again, your minds must be racing ahead of me. The word aid in Hebrew, which means a witness, a witness means someone who sees, and it says Shema. What's going on? Shema Israel Hashem Elokeinu. Here, O Israel, and the two secret letters, when put together, spell an aid, which is one who witnessed, one who saw. And of course, it's obvious to you if you know anything, even if you don't know it, that the ayin and the dalad in Hebrew, when you spell them together, it spells aid, and if you reverse them, it spells da, which means no. No is higher than seeing and hearing. No means that that which is seen and that which is heard has gone into intimacy, that means intimate bonding with you. Das in Hebrew means knowledge. But its literal meaning means the intimate relationship in marriage. That's what it literally means. The first time the Torah uses it, it does not mean to know things. It means marriage. That's what it means. We apply that word to that which the mind knows because it means that such an intimate bonding with the knowledge that has become one with you. The mystical sources say that if something you know with the faculty of Das proves to, proves to be false, you cease to exist. You don't not know anything. You don't not know this thing anymore. You cease to exist. If something you really know, you know it with a dice, for example, how you know you exist, 
If that ceases to be true, if that becomes disproved, you cease to exist. It is one with you. So what is Shema Yisrael? What does it mean? Listen, listen well. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeh. Shema does not mean listen. Shema means you Jewish people make oneness out of a broken down world. That's what it means. Hashem is Echad. You may not see that, but do it. Shema Yisrael means gather it together, Jewish people. That's what it means. Put all the numbers of the Spirit together and make oneness. That's what it means. It doesn't mean listen. We assume you're listening already. It means after you're listening, do Shema. After you're listening and you're hearing, know what listening means. It means go out into that confused world where everybody teaches you the opposite. And everything looks like an utter shambles and a breakdown. And it's one piece after another and there's no story apparent. And you, Shema, you put it together. You make a perfect oneness. You hear it. You really hear it. That's what Shema means. You can't see it. The world doesn't show itself to you. You walk out there, you won't see it. You'll see exactly what's wrong. Exactly. Look at the human being. The first thing that you will see is an animal. You want to see the human? You have to start listening. You have to start hearing with your eyes. You have to see and see and see and see. And you put it together. That's what listening means. Then you have a chad. Then you have eight. Then you become a witness. Then you've seen that which you were hearing before. Now it becomes knowledge. The Torah says, Atem Eida, you are my witnesses. The Jewish people, you are my witnesses. You know what it means? You testify that you saw me once. You know what a witness does? He testifies what he saw. You don't call in a witness when you see it yourself. You call in a witness when you cannot see it yourself. We live in a world that does not see it. But we saw it once. On Sinai, this night, tomorrow night, 3,000 We saw it. So Atem Eida, throughout history, you'll be tortured for this thing. You'll give your lives to testify to this thing. That's your function. Don't have to do it that way. You can do it the nice way. But you are Tim Ada, you are my witnesses. You have to die, you have to know it, and you have to be the aid. That's the same word. <clears throat> it's a long story, but just in a nutshell, you know that the, the Torah was given originally, the, original, the, the world was originally visible, you could see it. You didn't need to hear. When the world was originally created, the words of the world were visible. The Hebrew word, a word, davar, and the Hebrew word, an object, is the same word, as we've remarked many times. Because when the world was spoken into existence by Hashem's speech, every word that He spoke became the object. So you experienced it directly. There was no confusion. When you took an apple in your hand in those early days, when the prophetic mode was operating, you didn't see an apple, you saw the word of Hashem. Do you know that that's why we make brachas today? We make a blessing. <coughs> the idea of a blessing is we say, you Hashem are the source of this apple. That's what Baruch Atah Hashem is. You are the source of this apple. Why do we have to say it? Because we don't see it anymore. We have to remind ourselves. In the early generations of the world's history, there were no blessings. Because an apple wasn't an apple. Today an apple looks like an apple. But then it looked like a word of Hashem. A word was visible. The higher mode, the mode of prophecy, the mode of genuine knowledge, that is seen. What happened when it broke down? What happened when it broke down? Where did it break down? At the Tower of Babel. You remember that? The Tower of Babel. You know what Babel means? Babel. The English word Babel is a direct transliteration of the concept of language being meaningful that can be heard, becoming a Babel that cannot be heard. That was the Tower of Babel. People went up to control the world. They went to the point of oneness because they spoke one language where everything was heard clearly and was broken down. It happened in a town in a country called Babel. When the Jewish people lost prophecy, they were exiled back to Babel. The Babylonian exile, why was it sent? Why were we sent there? The source, the, Jew, the deep sources say, because Abraham, Abinu, Abraham came from there, 
That was his home. That's where he came from. When everyone else lost their language and it broke down, he retained prophecy. And when we fell below that level, we no longer deserved it. So to have a message painfully brought home to us, we were sent back to the place where it originated now that we'd lost it. And what was the Jewish people's response in the... This is a very, very rapid overview. It's a whole subject in its own right. But what was the Jewish people's response in that country of Bovel? How did we conduct ourselves in a land where we could no longer see? You know what we did there? We generated what we call Talmud Bavli. The Babylonian Talmud. Do you know what the Babylonian Talmud is? Do you know what it is? If you've ever had the merit to study Talmud, you'll know that what the Gemara is, it's taking the broken pieces and reconstructing them into the truth. If you learn Talmud, when you learn mystical wisdom, it shows you the truth. When you learn the mystical sources, even the Talmud Yerushalmi, for example, is a higher thing, the Zohar, it demonstrates truth. When you learn Talmud Bavli, it demonstrates falsehood. And out of grasping what's false, you figure out what's right. Anyone who's ever studied Talmud in Yeshiva knows that all the Gemara does is demonstrate the things that are wrong. We call them Havamenas and Maskonas. The first, the Gemara brings you something and spends three pages proving to you in a watertight fashion that it's true and then shows you why it's false. <laughs> and out of that constructs a higher method, a higher thesis, better construction, better proof, and shows you why that's wrong. And out of destroying the things that are wrong, you concentrate... You, why? Why would it do that? There's no science textbook that does that. There's no mathematics or science textbook that spends five pages proving something and then says, wrong. <laughs> Not the way it works. But the Talmud only works that way. You know why? Because all the Jewish people are left with is the broken pieces. That's all we have. In the mystical language, it's called the shattering of the vessels. The source of this is called Shvira Sakalim, where the vessels broke. And they fell with almost no light in them. And since all we have is the broken pieces, if you're left with a beautiful structure that is now smashed, and that's all you have, there's only one thing to do. You take the broken pieces and you reconstruct them into what you had before. Since all we have is the, the broken pieces of the prophetic wisdom, all we can do is take the broken pieces and put them together. That's called hearing. You know what's amazing? When you study Zohar, if you ever have the privilege of learning the, the Kabbalistic source material, the Zohar, or the Talmud Yerushalmi, Jerusalem Talmud, written in Jerusalem, not in Babel where it was broken down. Whenever the Gemara wants to demonstrate something, or the Zohar wants to demonstrate something, it says, Ta-chazi. You know what that means in Aramaic? Come and see. Come and see. Do you know what the Babylonian Talmud says when it wishes to demonstrate something? Tashma. Come and listen. Amazing. All the other sources, they wish you to see it, to be demonstrated. But in Gemara, that's not the way it works. Gemara trains you to see what you cannot see. The Gemara trains you to see around corners. You can't think as a Jew unless you learn Gemara. Unless you're a woman. Women have it naturally and they see, to the, they see the totality without needing it. It's one of the reasons that women do not study Talmud. They do not need to go into the broken mode to see the holistic construction. can damage that holistic grasp. That's why our women do not study Talmud. They study the deeper things. They study the things that can be grasped holistically and totally. It's men who need to break it down and reconstruct from the false constructs. But that's another... There's another discussion. Can we add one more? Can we add another layer? Do you have more energy? Yeah. Let's add one more layer. You know that the ears which hear, it goes on and on. There's no end to this. The ears that hear have two functions. We said we can learn everything from the body. Yes? The ears have two functions. Besides hearing, you know what they do? Balance. They cause you to balance. The same organ that by which you hear gives you balance. You couldn't walk. You couldn't even stand without your ears. 
What are the two connected? We have a mystical principle that if two parts of the body fulfill, if one part of the body fulfills two functions, they must be the same thing. Otherwise they would have been put in two different parts. If one focus in that incredibly sanctified entity, which is the human body, has two divergent or apparently different functions, there must be one at root. What is there in common between hearing and balance? By the way, in case you've missed it, in Hebrew the word for the ear means to balance. You know that? Izun in Hebrew means balance. You never knew that? <laughs> I get a wicked pleasure out of this. Ozen in Hebrew, which means the ear, means to balance. Laazin, Izun means balance. What's the connection? Incidentally, you know that this month, you know the Sefer Yetzirah, one of the great Kabbalistic source works, written by Avram Avinu, no less. The Sefer Yetzirah, which you can try to study yourself. The, the, the Sefer Yetzirah says that every month of the 12 months is corresponding to a faculty in the body. Every one of the 12 months is corresponding to one of the 12 permutations of Hashem's name and one of the 12 mazalot, etc., What's the mazal of this month? <coughs> What's the zodiac of this month? What's the zodiac of this month? You, you call yourselves mystics? Teomim, twins, Gemini. Sivan, yeah, Gemini, twins. It's a harmony between two things. Do you know, it's a harmony between two things. Nisan, when the Torah is given, is the sheep that's passively led. Er is the opposite, it's the ox. Not passively led, it leads its own independent... And finally, you come to Sivan, the giving of the Torah, it's perfect harmony, Gemini. It's Moshe and Aaron, the written and the oral law, the two tablets, Hashem and As, etc. But whenever you have two things in harmony, you have three things. The fact that they're in balance, their bond is the third thing. It's the oneness that's formed out of the two of them. What is the faculty of the body that this month represents? Of all, laughing is one month, laughing, laughter. All the faculties of the body are represented by a month. This month, the Sefer Yisrael says, is walking. Hiluch, walking. What is walking? Walking is the activity that two legs do. Walking is the activity that two legs do in harmony. Do you know that medically, neurologically, it's totally impossible to explain. The degree of coordination and exquisite balance that is required. Do you know how many evolutionary accidents there must have been of creatures that kept falling before they got it right? <laughs> must have gone on for... <laughs> I don't know fallen angels. There must have been a lot of fallen monkeys <laughs> before, they, before they got it right. The, the, the deep sources explain it's what's unique about walking. You need two legs to do it. But what's unique about it is unlike other things that you need, again, you have to hear deeply. These are not superficial ideas. Unlike other things that require two organs, like hands. When you do an activity out of two hands, again, when you do an activity out of two hands, so if you did it with only one, you have less. You have less. It's less adequate. You cannot walk with one leg. Walking is done by the two. It's the two coming together into a oneness. That's called, Izun means balance. That's what it is. It's when disparate things are forming a oneness that's uniquely one in that. That's what balance is. It's the harmony of two. Let's come back to our original question. There's a lot more to say, but let's a lot more to say. But with this beginning and beginning of an introduction, let's come back to our original question and see if we can 
See if we can answer our question. And perhaps learn something new for, for receiving the Torah tomorrow night, early the next morning. Just come to an all-night learning program. You stay up through the night. It's a wonderful custom. Greet the dawn with a, with a mode of receiving the Torah fresh, personally. So it says they saw the sounds. They saw the sounds. Let's put what we've learned together this evening together. Let's construct it. Let's hear it. See if we can understand. See if we can reach die or not. A, be a witness and not. Hearing happens in the darkness. Hearing happens only in the, in the world of process. Only when one thing happens after the next, after the next, and you personally put it together. Hearing is the mode of this world. And seeing is the mode of the next world. In the next world you cannot hear, you can only see. In the next world there is no process that you have to construct. The next world is entirely evident presence of Hashem. The next world the soul is witnessing and experiencing Hashem's presence directly. There is no process. There is no choice. There is no reconstruction. There is no construction. There is no wrong ideas that you are constructing into right ideas. The next world is pure vision. It's pure light. You know, you know what it says when Hashem reveals Himself? It will be a night that will be a day. It will be a night that will be a day. The Laila Kayom Ya'ir, that the night will light like the day. The Iver of blindness will go back to the Or of Aleph. That's what it will be. The Or, the light of vision. So that when the dawn breaks, the Gemara says, the Gemara says that this world, Domela Laila, this world is like a night. And the next world is like a, a dawn, like a day. In the day you see. <coughs> the next world you see. In this world you cannot see. You can't see in this world. All you can do in this world, you can use your eyes, but you can only hear. In this world, all you can do is to listen. Because no matter how much you look, you can look with, with, with your eyes, your ears, your hand, it makes no difference. This is a world that does not prove its spiritual essence. No matter how intense you are and how spiritual you are, there's always another possibility. This world does not have proof, you do not see. The next world you see, in this world you listen. There's no Shema Yisrael in the next world. There's Shema Yisrael in this world. <coughs> the word Yisrael, Shema Yisrael, you know what Yisrael is? You know what the letters of Yisrael spell? Yesh Shishim Ribo Otiot La Torah. That's what the word Yisrael spells. There are 600,000 letters to the Torah, which is a oneness. 600,000 in, individual entities, namely each Jewish soul, they form the oneness of Torah, which is one. Shema Yisrael, Jewish people, you are the ones who form a oneness. The nations aren't a oneness. The nations of the world are not a oneness. The nations of the world are a multiplicity. Their strength lies in their numbers and their multiplicity. They're not a oneness. Our, our identity is a oneness. That's what we live for, is going back to that oneness and reconstructing it. Our idea of power is being the smallest nation on earth, but we won. That's what we should be. Why do you think the Torah was received on a day when it says they all, they all were there as one man? It says, It was like one man with one heart. One human being with one heart. Only when the Jewish people coalesced into one being was the Torah. It says, The Jewish people encamped by the mountain and it uses the singular. You know that? The Torah used the singular. And the Torah is talking literal. We said that the Torah always means what it says literally. The Jewish people encamped and it uses the singular. Because the Jewish people were one human being. You want to meet the oneness and see it? then you must become one. It's again and again and again, it's the idea of fraction, fractured, differentiated entities melting into a oneness. Again, this world you hear, the next world you see. What happened at Sinai? Please stay with me. Let's put it together. What happened at Sinai? 
The Jewish people stood at Sinai. They did the work of Shema Israel. They came together in a oneness. Know where Shema Israel originated? When the twelve sons of Yaakov Avinu, the twelve sons, symbolizing the breakdown of the Jewish people into twelve branches. You know what a Shevet means in Hebrew? A tribe, and it means a branch. A branch means it bends away from the center. The center is Yaakov Avinu Jacob. Each tribe bends away. You know the two words in Hebrew for a tribe are Mateh and Shevet. Both mean a branch of a tree. Twelve branches in twelve different directions, forming one trunk of a tree, the thirteenth, which is the, the essential center, that's Yaakov. So what is, you, you know where Shema Israel comes from? Where does that expression come from? Why has it become the credo and the... You know where it comes from? It says when he was dying, He wanted to show them the Kates. He wanted to show them Mashiach. He wanted to show the Jewish people the final unifying end of history. The Messianic revelation. And he began to bring it out with his prophetic knowledge, and it was sealed. It was taken out of... It was sealed. So he had a terrible feeling that the reason that he couldn't bring it out and reveal it was because he knew he was perfect. He knew he was perfect. It must have been one of his sons. So he looked at each of those incredible boys, and they were all perfect. We know that because he gave each one a blessing specific to his nature. There was only one conclusion left. If he was perfect, and was able to bring out that prophecy in himself, and each of them was perfect, and yet it was blocked, there was only one possibility left. They were each perfect, but they hadn't melted into one being. They were perfect, but not their coalescing and their oneness as one. And when that thought struck him, at the instant that that thought struck him, and he looked to see their oneness, they said to him, Shema Israel, listen Israel, our father, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, just as he's one in your heart, he's one in our unified heart. And then he said, Then he realized that Hashem had hidden it from him, and that Jewish people only to have that revealed at the end of history. Not because of his block, not because of theirs, not because of the oneness, but taken away. So that statement, Shema Israel, that we are one, we have unified ourselves as your children, together with you. Right? And we form 13. What is 13 in Hebrew? Echad. The word Echad in Hebrew adds up to 13. Aleph, Chet, Talet adds up to 13. Just like the word Ahava, meaning love, adds up to 13. <coughs> so at Sinai, what happened? The Jewish people stood there in a recapturing of that moment of oneness. And Hashem appeared. When he appeared on the mountain, again, in childish terms, when you have childlike eyes, childish eyes, it means, I'm not even going to bring myself to say the words, that whoever lives there came down here. To understand what, what it means is that on that mountain, they witnessed the next world meet this world. The infinite melted into the finite. That's what happened. That Hashem appeared on earth to give the Torah means he came down here. Not in the eyes of a child. It means that the infinite dimension, the end point, the next world, him himself, manifested within this world. Absolutely impossible paradox, that's what happened. They all died. The Gemara says they died. They said the moment Hashem appeared on the mountain, all the Jewish people died. The Gemara says that all their souls, the Neshamas flew out to Hashem and the bodies were blasted back 12 miles outside the camp. The Neshama doesn't stay around with the body when Hashem appears. The Neshama flies out to its source instantaneously and magnetically. The bodies were blasted back 12 miles. And then Hashem began to speak again with the second of the Ten Commandments after they were revived and brought forward to Sinai to hear again. When they heard His voice again, when He appeared again, they died again. The same explosion. They were revived the third time to be brought back and they said no. They said it's enough. It's very difficult to die. And they said to Moshe Ben, you hear. You hear the rest of the Torah. And you tell us, and Hashem said, They did correctly to do that. From then on, we didn't hear the rest. Moshe Rabbeinu gave it to us. But the first two of the Ten Commandments, we heard ourselves. What does it mean? That Hashem appeared, that we met Him, 
that he appeared in this world. The infinite melted into the finite. The next world, this world became the next world. When that happens, there's no process possible. You know what the Gemara said? The Gemara says that at that moment, nothing moved. The, how does, the Gemara describes what happened. That when Hashem appeared on the mountain to give the Torah, the world stopped literally. The Gemara says no bird flew, nothing moved, no molecule vibrated, nothing moved at all. Why? Because everything was already there. There was no place to move except away. When the oneness that is the center of existence manifests, and all the broken down bits and pieces of a world that needs to be heard, no longer need to be heard, when the world of vision superimposes itself upon the world of hearing, and all that there is must be seen, then you see the sounds, you cannot hear the sounds. You can only hear sounds in a world of darkness. You can only hear when there's a darkness, you hear one thing and then the next and then the next and you put it together. But in a world of light, when the next world manifests in this world, when Hashem Himself met the Jewish people, when the next world was here and there was no place to go, nothing moved because it was already there, how is any process possible? In that world there is no hearing. The Torah could not say they heard the sounds. They didn't hear something which was a process. In that mode of seeing, the literal meaning, yeah, the, all you can ever say there, is that they saw the sounds. It's the only... And that's why it says in that final revelation, when Hashem appears again, it says, All flesh then shall see, Kipi Hashem Diber, the words that have been spoken. Not they will hear. That will not be possible then. Now is the time for hearing. That will be the time for seeing. The message, of course, of Shurus, of tomorrow night, is that you have to learn to hear. No one's going to show you. It's no longer a world in which demonstrations are magical, miraculous demonstrations, proofs. They live inside, internally. They don't live outside. It's a world that's running to be proven, running far and wide to have it shown and demonstrated and have magical, miraculous people demonstrate things. Uh, look at you or your tea leaves. It has to be seen within. That means heard. But it has to be heard so clearly that you see it. Then the aid becomes a da. Then the witnessing becomes an inner knowledge. That's what it is. Therefore the effort of tomorrow, preparation tomorrow, putting it all together, on that final day of the Sphere, is to put all those words together, all those days into the 49th day. Put that sipur together, all the words of the story. Put all the words of that book together. The Sefer Yetzirah says that the world is a safer, safer of a sipur. The Sefer Yetzirah. The Sefer Tzirah says that the world is a book, a book, and a story. Sefer, Sefer, Vesipur. That is what the